I wonder what kind of leader I was. I mean was because it's been 10 years since I had employees working for me. But in my heyday, I had 120. And I fancy myself as a swashbuckling entrepreneur willing to battle any competitor, national or multinational, and win. I was blessed with optimism and a personality and disposition where I saw the glass overflowing. But I was also cursed with the feeling that any moment it could all be taken away. And often outside of my control. Climate change, economic downturns, losing my favorite client, a top performing employee, a lousy investment. I did my best to mask these anxieties, but they're always there bubbling under the surface. I wonder how these two Tonys, the swashbuckling and optimistic entrepreneur and the anxious one worried about things often outside their control, played out to the people who work for me, to my family, to my friends. And when it came to my company, I realized that looking back, I thought of my culture as a collective. They're a part of me. I mean, we worked hard, we played hard, and well, we were all the same. And did it make me more empathetic and patient to others that struggled or maybe couldn't mask their feelings the way I did? I mean, I buried my weaknesses and strutted my strengths. Why couldn't they? It was only years after that I sold my business and took my experiences onto the conference stage and then began my life as a podcast host that I really woke up to the world around me. Talking to people like Dr. Karen Gordon, Amy Deacon, Jillian Stein, Mark Hennick, and others, I learned that I could have done better seeing our culture not as a collective, but as a mosaic of individuals. Some were extroverts, some introverts, perfectionists, free thinkers, diversity of age, ethnicity, gender, and circumstance. We were young, and when it came to health, I could see the people who were physically healthy and fit, and those that weren't, but I never paid enough attention to whether they were mentally well. If I could do it again, I'd spend less time chasing that entrepreneurial dream and more time studying psychology and philosophy with people who devote their lives to mental health and the health of organizations. By virtue of having people, companies are going to have people-related health and safety uh, issues, risk opportunities to address, you know, other types of health-based impact areas. There's so much territory to cover and some of it's on the map and some of it's still yet to be discovered. That is why selfishly I'm so excited about our guest today. Her superpowers combine the rigor of medicine with the corporate training excellence of management consulting. She holds a Master of Public Health from Harvard University, a Bachelor of Science from Western University, and an MD and a certification in the College of Family Physicians from McMaster University. She is well-learned. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Her name is Dr. Talia Varley, and she sells strategic roles at Harvard Business School, the University of Toronto, McMaster University, and SickHits. You'll soon hear how Dr. Varley will speak to you as an individual, as someone building a career, contributing to their family and friends, and fostering a great culture. And culture, I don't mean just work. It could be an association, a community, a congregation, a sports team, or what happens around your family table. Dr. Varley, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Well, Tony, thank you so much for having me here today. It's fantastic. We're going to get into a lot of the work you're doing with the Cleveland Clinic in Canada. But first, I just want to talk to you about my opening. You know, like when I talked about my anxieties of always wondering if the sky's falling. But I look back to the last 22 years of this century, you know, 9-11, pandemics, irrational leaders, climate change, and today, you know, economic downturn. And what's really piling onto us as individuals with inflation, job, and food insecurity. How is all of this impacting not only 
me as an individual, but our, our collective energy and mental health. Yeah, I think there's a lot around perception and reality. And in some senses, we are living in a time where we have access to incredible resources that we never had before. We're having conversations that were really never open to us um, as they are now versus in the past. And so in some ways, you might say, if we're better resourced, are we really better prepared for this new reality, regardless of some of these challenges you mentioned, whether it's 9-11, a real awakening to factors like climate change. Um, but at the same time, these sentiments are very real and we experience them with that reality. So it can certainly bog us down when it comes to our mental health. And, and that's felt meaningfully on a day-to-day basis. So it's interesting you said perception versus reality because uh, a guest I have been coming up in a while is Dr. Steven Pinker from Harvard, one of your alumni. And he just says it really, like the world isn't as bad as we think, but as you're saying, our perception is is getting worse every day. What advice can you give to people in terms of how to tune out some of the negative energy that's coming at us and take time to smell the roses and embrace some of the positivity and possibility that is happening. Reframing is a powerful tool. And so as we think about, you know, perception and reality, they both really matter when it comes to behavior. Um, reality, because that's what's really happening. Uh, but perception is really our experience of that reality. And there's a lot of interplay between those two features. And they're both really dynamic. But as we step back and start to reframe things and bring context into that equation, it can help us to process that information differently and bring in more of that positivity that was really always there. So I'm interested because this is why I'm so fascinated by psychology and I wish I'd spent more time on it. Because as you're saying that and reframing it, but we also have our confirmation bias. It kind of, we believe what we want to believe. And today we're with these like-minded people reading like-minded content. The East hates the West, left versus the right, wealthy not wealthy, conservative versus liberal, we get so locked into a point of view. How difficult is it for us to actually reframe it, step back and look at things at face value versus what we think we value? Well, the truth is, Tony, it can be hard. And there are lots of different kinds of biases. Confirmation bias is just one. Um, what does it mean? It's, it's about uh, us having a tendency to interpret new types of information to confirm our existing beliefs or dismissing or discounting evidence that speaks to the contrary. We know this concept really well in healthcare. We know it can influence anything from a doctor making clinical decisions to how a patient um, thinks about things like health literacy. That might include things like online um, health information seeking. And we know that we tend to bias ourselves towards things that are consistent with our beliefs. And again, if we think that it's not, we'll sort of put it to the side and not really process it in the same way. And that can then influence how we sort of look at, find, rely on, and interpret information. Um, and so to move past it, I think we sort of need to be cognizant of why is it happening in the first place? Why are we biased when it comes to confirmation? And the truth is that it's helpful to us, right? It's a tool that helps us to process information a bit better. It helps us to build confidence because it reinforces what we think and believe and strengthens that assertion. And it reduces a sense of mental conflict. But we have to recognize it uh, because it really has the potential to shape our world. It can influence everything from our political beliefs to even hiring practices in the workplace. And really dismantling this type of a bias um, is easy in theory, but hard in practice. 
And so we have to learn to challenge ourselves when it comes to these everyday preconceptions. So especially where we might have very strong beliefs, the more we feel strongly about something, the more likely it is that actually this confirmation bias might be at work. How does this impact leaders and organizations that are trying to knit together a cohesive culture Knowing that as individuals, given the, this fire hose of information we're taking in, our ability to Google our own uh, preventative health care, our, our ability to go to doctors and say, I think I need this prescription. How does that all work together when the leader's kind of saying, I need you to just leave all of that behind for a moment and really talk about us and we versus you and they? We are speaking to this new era of trusted resources of information. And historically, where individuals really trusted things like their family doctor, leaders within the community, there's a lot of trust now endowed in business leaders. And companies are very much a trusted source of information. And so in some ways, when you get up on a soapbox as a C-suite executive at a company, you actually have a very specific communication channel to individuals that might be even stronger than that of, let's say, a public health force in a local, provincial, or federal level. That's interesting. So, in fact, they should be thinking about not only their agenda, but the reality is they've got a captive audience and what they say can be of utmost importance, not just in terms of driving profitability, but something of a higher purpose. Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of this sense of stakeholder capitalism and a sense of really impacting the broader community and aligning the corporate mission to that of the greater social good and community. And this direct communication channel, I think, is a path towards doing both of those things. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dr. Talia Varley. She has an insight into the business of doing business and the health of employees and the health of organizations. Dr. Varley, we're going to get to some of the world-renowned work you're doing with the Cleveland Clinic in Canada. But first, I want to know a little bit more about the path you took. I read your educational resume and almost took the entire hour of my show. So I'm curious about what encouraged you to follow this path where you spent so much time in school learning so many incredible things. I think the running joke in our household was you only had two career options. You were either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. And my older sibling decided to be a lawyer. So I guess that means I was going to be a doctor. Um, I joke, of course, because in truth, we were surrounded by a lot of uh, really positive professional influences from family members to friends doing really incredible things with their lives. Um, and that really spanned outside of this sort of two-pronged optionality. Um and that's really where I learned about medicine. I got to meet clinicians and surgeons uh, who had a deep impact on the world. I got to meet artists. I got to meet people who are really enthusiastic about sports and, and different activities in life. And that's where I really landed on medicine as a vocation. Uh, I believe it's a, a deep act of service. It's one that I'm privileged to be able to say is my calling. And it's one that I continue to complement with a lot of different things across personal interests. Well, I want to talk about because you, you talk about as your calling, like that was this divine intervention that led you that way. But researching your background, I mean, competitive classic pianist, orange belt in karate, studied calligraphy, and your original path wasn't being a lawyer or a doctor. You also thought about being a fashion designer who fell in love with the ballet. So that's a lot of different things in your knapsack. You could have gone one way or the other. If you hadn't gone into medicine, 
Would any of those become your calling? Maybe. I don't know that I would have become a professional karate (laughs) person, but uh, I think something in design, whether it was on fashion or if it was around homes, uh, building design, architecture, uh, any of that I think would have been in my wheelhouse because of just this real love of the arts and appreciation for the importance of that intersection with day-to-day life. Biophilic design is a great example of that, that I, I continue to talk about to this day that actually does dovetail with the healthcare sector. So how important is it that we encourage the new generation coming through school, even if they find a, and they're fortunate enough to find their passion and their pursuit, that they round it out with other things? So if I'm a science major, I'm looking at the literary arts. If I'm really pursuing music or art, I'm also looking at the math and science. Is it important that we at least give people that context because it'll help them achieve whatever they want to achieve in the career they're choosing? Balance is always important and the humanities are are so called for a reason. Uh, It's important to add context of reality to anything that we do. And we know that when we think about kids growing up, having this diversity of interests and exposure to different opportunities really does help to nurture a natural sense of curiosity. And that curiosity is really emblematic of what we see in a lot of leaders and entrepreneurs to this day who are, who are some of the most successful and deep contributors in the world. So I'm going to let my confirmation bias come in on this because I think that in school today, we sort of have one culture. We're kind of teaching one way. And I'm kind of basing that also on the fact that I've got young nieces and they talk about their friends and stuff. Do you think we need more diversity of thought, even within the school system, that this rigid curriculum uh, has more elasticity so that people can have a safe place to make mistakes and be curious and be energetic? I haven't been too ingrained in the elementary educational system in a while, but speaking broadly, I think that diversity of thinking and ability to make mistakes is critical. Even as we think about how we look at startups. There's the idea of feeling fast. How do you make a quick mistake that's small, learn from it, iterate quickly, and then scale from there on on a platform that's stronger rather than sort of building something all at once and then realizing down the line that it was going to fail. Um, being able to make mistakes and pick yourself up and, and be resilient is a huge part of the toolkit that I think all kids should want to develop and, and certainly can. You know, you talk about failing fast, failing often is not a badge of negativity with startups. It really is part of their superpower. Do you think that is also their superpower when going against bureaucracy and more rigid organizations that entrepreneurs are more willing to accept failure as a path to improvement versus major organizations which frown on failure because it's it challenges their status quo? I think that there are a lot of benefits to both the smaller business model and larger established organizations. Um, there's a sense of agility that you can typically achieve in earlier stage organizations that enables you to move really quickly, uh, enables you to fail fast in different ways. Different types of systems and structures and companies um, can either enable or hinder some of this type of speed. Um, and we know that as these companies get bigger, even some of the great startups from Silicon Valley start to see some of the same challenges that these bigger um, 
established company see once they achieve that type of scale. And so it's about making the most out of that agile time period while you can and trying to really maintain some of those best practices, even as you grow to achieve that bigger scale. I want to get back to you now. I know we're going a bit back and forth on it, but I'm curious that you got this incredible degrees and you made a choice to go instead of practicing medicine, you really wanted to focus on the business side which I really embrace because I think that we need people that understand medicine and business to really help us focus on where healthcare is going to go in the future. But I'm curious, when did you make that decision and why? So that decision was one that came after a lot of thought. I'm someone who's always been driven towards impact. And I saw a lot of incredible impact in the world of medicine and and how we work with patients every day. We help them to enjoy healthier, higher quality lives. But there are limits to that impact of patient care, and we're often limited by potential systems, but even just the sheer number of hours that we have in a day or a week or a month to see a certain volume of people. And so I wanted to explore a way to really touch more lives, help more patients in a way that created value at more of that systems level. And over time, I realized that the business side of medicine was a way to really get there and make that type of positive change at scale. And how open is the system for that kind of thinking? Because as you say, when we get bigger, and healthcare is certainly one of the biggest economies in our economy, there's a certain, that's the way we do things. This is how it, it works. You know, I may even talk about doctors that, in, you know, the interns that would go in and work 36 hours straight because that's the way we do things. How open are they to change and new ideas? I think there's always room for change and innovation. It's just how many people are listening at the beginning and how many hearts and minds you need to change over time. Uh, And how hard is that conversation going to be to really turn the narrative? Um, But as you can imagine, even with my own journey, there were, there was really a variety of reactions that I had to my own personal pivots. Some were expected, some were unexpected. But if you can bring people along with your narrative and and take them with you on the journey, over time, they can develop a shared understanding of of what your future state vision is. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. We return. I'll move the conversation to today with Dr. Talia Varley, Physician Lead for Advisory Services at Cleveland Clinic Canada. She's going to talk about how she applies this, what we're hearing about, this incredible intersection between how to practice medicine and the business of medicine and how that's going to impact you as an individual and impact you as a leader of an organization. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. whether it's a small or a large company, national or international, um, any industry, whether it's insurance, finance, telecommunications and beyond, you know, we get really excited to bring our unique uh, team-based and enterprise-based insights to the fore, uh, wherever people are really looking to create value at the intersection of health and business. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm sitting with Dr. Talia Varley and the question that she's answering in this storm of negativity is there still a path to positivity 
So talk to me a little bit about what you're doing at the Cleveland Clinic of Canada, because I know you went through McKinsey. You've been a rock star wherever you've gone with your career. You end up at Cleveland Clinic in Canada. What brought you there and what are you hoping to do with their platform to help you with this sort of calling that you talk about? Yeah, So coming to Cleveland Clinic in Canada was really an opportunity to blend my clinical and corporate background in a unique way. And so when we say physician lead advisory services, what that means is I get to lead a major business line as a member of our senior leadership team. Um, and that means I get to touch lives across the whole country and internationally. So our team gets to work as a deep privilege with some of the biggest companies in the country. And we help them on things like health-based strategy, reducing organizational risk, bolstering employee and customer health, safety and performance. And we do that through our medical director program. And so we really use this systems-based approach because we're this international, uh, global not-profit um, to support companies with topics ranging from COVID to mental health and beyond. You know, we talk about narrative. In your narrative, one of a series of many articles you've written in the Globe and Mail, you said this, healthy organizational culture is built intentionally creating a way of life in the workplace that integrates health and wellness in every aspect of the business, from company policies to everyday work activities. It sounded a little utopian to me, you know, and I don't mean that in a disparaging sense, but it, it sounds wonderful. But how do you get an organization to march and step between that purpose and profit? It's a great question. Actually, there was a, an HBS professor, George Seraphim, who recently published his book, Purpose and Profit. Um, and so it's certainly a question on a lot of folks' minds right now. And there are a lot of companies leading incredible work in this, especially now. And healthy organizational culture is built intentionally. We know that. And it's specifically built by great and forward thinking leaders. So I, I really believe in this sort of people driven approach of great leaders within great companies make great change. And we're privileged to work with a lot of these great leaders from a lot of different industries, whether it's banking, airlines, telcos. And they all share this deep understanding that in a lot of ways, when you think about it, steel-toed boots and hard hats of the past um, are elevated now. And we've expanded that to include different types of things like personal protective equipment for people. Maybe that's about training around resilience. Uh, but we know that the cost of doing business safely and sustainably has just gone up. And to me, that's really at that intersection of purpose and profit, where to be able to be profitable, to have people, investors who want to invest in you, um, you have to have that sense of purpose, that, you know, deep rooting in values that is aligned with what your customers and clients and society are, are really looking for in companies. In many ways, you're talking about, you know, a, a leader that's more vulnerable, more open, more willing to realize that that's the future. But again, let's go back to that word narrative. The narrative out there is always about the rock star leader, the Elon Musk that's going to colonize Mars or save the world or the terrorist leader like a Trump that's just like, uh, the world's going to hell and only I can save you. That seems to be getting the narrative. Why aren't we hearing more stories of people like this that, that can say to, to the planet, to humanity, to my shareholders, to my employees, if we get this right, we can be a much better organization. We don't hear a lot about those people. It's funny you say that because I'd, I'd say that we're starting to hear more and more from them. I think that the platform for a voice from these types of leaders is only widening. And if we think about it historically, the types of leaders who are going to bolster this narrative, they're typically the archetype of a servant leader, right? They can lead from the back and from the front. 
And so if I think about some of the incredible leaders that we get to work with, they're phenomenal examples of C-suite leaders who are behind a lot of the intentional new building of infrastructure, a lot of this change at the intersection of purpose and profit, where they're supporting their companies in preparing for these next practice challenges. And I think that we're starting to see even more of their voices out there in the ecosystem. And how important is it that we really do our job in sharing these, because I'll give you an example. Jillian Stein, who is at Henry Cameron, what Global Mail said was the first uh, leader to ever come out in Canada and declare that she had a bipolar disorder. There was a tremendous amount of press about this. And, and I, I did a podcast interview with her. She's a wonderful individual. This is 2022. These stories, which I think need to be elevated, that it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to have warts, you don't have to be the superhuman, seems to be the anomaly versus the norm. What advice can you give to corporate Canada and to the media that we tell more and share more of these stories? I think it's about leadership being the exception and not the rule. We're constantly pushing the boundaries of what we mean by being the exception because what was exceptional five years ago is now the rule. Mental health is a great example of that. We've had a lot of incredible work pushed by a lot of incredible organizations and leaders, Bell being a great example, to foster this change in narrative where the conversation today is so different in the best way possible than it was 10 years ago. And so when we have leaders pushing towards next practice boundaries, they're redefining what excellence looks like and what time and resources we would need to really foster things like healthy employees, conversations, companies, societies. They're the ones who are helping us to move to where the puck is going, not where it is right now. And they are going to be the ones to watch. I want to build on this because it's, you know, you have these people that are really driving the agenda. I love where the puck is going, but where the puck is right now, there's a lot of leaders, a lot of organizations struggling with remote working. You know, what should we bring people back to the office? Or they're, they're challenged by the great resignation. There's a massive shortage in talent that they covet. And we're reading in the headlines now, there's a lot of talent that's starting to feel very insecure out there. So there's a lot of dynamics happening. How do you factor that in to an organization that's sometimes just struggling to stay above water? What advice can you give them to make sure they never lose sight of that healthy workforce is the healthy company? Let's be honest, the archetype of a leader seems to be getting ever more complex. The role of a manager and their responsibilities, the role, responsibilities of a company, they are all ever expanding. And it can feel pretty daunting when you put that together in terms of inflation, economic pressures, challenges around hybrid work, enhancing DEI, tackling leader burnout is a big topic. At the end of the day, a lot of this does start with education and awareness. It's all about having that conversation and then building from there around being really intentional about making positive changes through small steps towards big impact, because it's pretty overwhelming to tackle all of these big topics and tackle them all at once. Um, some of it's about changing that over time. But as long as you have a path towards doing that and you're intentional about it, you're going to get there. And so I want to now draw a parallel from the organizations that you work with and some of the top ones and some incredible startups to the family dinner table and this whole sense of culture because culture exists at home. It exists in communities. It exists with my hockey team, my associations. And what advice can you bring to have people come to terms with the, the pressure we're feeling and this uncertainty and this 
torrent of negative news that's coming at everybody at every age, when we still get around the family table, it's a safe place to show failure, to make mistakes, to be curious, to ask crazy questions and stuff. Is, is there parallels that you can bring to the to my listeners for their family table? Absolutely. And, and the funny thing is, there's a lot of simplicity to these tools and these reframing mindsets, right? Just as we talked about this idea of being open to feeling fast and having certain cultures in the workplace, that same cultural practice can be paralleled in the home environment. So if you make it a safe place for your kids to try something and fail rather than not trying at all, if you make it okay for them to talk at the dinner table about what didn't go so well today and helping them to problem solve through it together in a really open, psychologically safe setting, that all helps to manifest in positive personal experiences, but will also translate into the professional environment over time as your kids get older and as you transition into different life stages as a family unit. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We've all heard that prevention is the best cure. Well, Dr. Talia Varley has made it her life passion to prove it. So I just want to talk about this. I guess maybe people are walking around with so much anxiety or negative energy, but we seem to be assaulting others. The sense of civility, the human and humanity. You know, I was at the conference of Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers and their, their frontline workers were put on a pedestal as absolute heroes for putting food out there so people could eat during the pandemic. But almost a month later, they're getting yelled at because of mask policy. What can we do as a society to find a way to take some of the froth off and really get back to realizing that a lot of things can be solved through decency and through collaboration and listening and generosity and you say servant leadership versus this sort of autocratic my way or the highway mentality? It's interesting. We are seeing similar trends in healthcare uh, where we once saw communities banging pots and pans. We are now seeing that same level of aggression, especially at the front lines. And part of it is driven by the collective traumatic experiences of the last few years. Part of it is Things have gotten a bit tougher, including with talent shortages, where wait times are getting longer. There's more of a sense of pressure in terms of coming down on systems. And that is true whether you're in the restaurant industry or in a customer service call center. The last few years have been hard. There's this accumulation of frustration. At the end of the day, it's about bringing that sense of humanity back into the picture. And a lot of these micro kindnesses, micro positivities can potentially be an antidote or a solution. Google did this incredible project called Project Aristotle. They try to decode creating the best team possible. And I imagine they started off with hiring practices and, and, you know, seats on the bus, like Jim Collins talked about. But what they realized that the most important thing about a team is how they work together, the sense of psychological safety that we talked about. What are you learning in your experiences and what advice do you bring for people that are involved in creating a team or being part of a team? in terms of how to make it work in the most effective and positive way possible. When I think about high-performing, happy teams, I I often reference an anecdote from Simon Sinek. uh, And he is really well known for talking about the intersection of performance and trust. And he's famous for this example uh, in speaking with Navy SEALs and a bit of a two-by-two matrix of, would you rather have someone on your team who was a high performer or someone where there was a high level of trust with them? Obviously, everyone wants both, but if you were actually given the option between the two, you'd actually rather have someone index higher on the trust meter 
over and above performance, especially when it comes to trusting someone with your life or with something that's precious to you or meaningful to you. And so what that means to me is a lot of these power skills, which I think we're really renaming from the term soft skills in an important way now, those matter. And having a conversation about how that influences the dynamics of a team and that ability to perform efficiently and effectively, I think that that really can't be understated. What advice do you bring to leaders to make sure they're populating their team with those soft skills? I think the way that we want to start vetting team members, whether it's interviewing different colleagues from across an organization to join your team or net new potential team members to your company, uh, we need to be really thoughtful about looking for these next practice skills. Again, that archetype of the leader is shifting. And what that requires is thinking about job descriptions differently, thinking about how we vet candidates differently, thinking about how we train and upskill our people differently, all to make sure that there's a, a new era of balance between some of those traditional occupational skill sets and what it really takes to thrive in the workplace of today and tomorrow. So when you're talking to leaders about this, many of the leaders you're talking about got there not necessarily with their soft skills. I mean, they might have been a product of the age where it was about performance, uh, hitting marks, setting records, uh, going on that incentive trip. How do you convince them to invite people onto their business that maybe their confirmation bias is they're soft. They're not cut from the school of hard knocks. They're, they're not like me and have them open their minds to saying maybe the way forward is not being like you is more important than having everybody be like you. I think we're going to see the same signals in this conversation as we're seeing in terms of things like hybrid work. There is a new normal. There are new types of teams that are emerging. And we're coming at this at a moment in time where we're seeing the baby boomers start to exit the workforce in greater numbers. And Gen Z really populate more and more of our workforce and teams. And so with that in mind, we're going to start to see some of the historical trips and tricks and tools be much less effective in this new way of working. And I think that that conversation will be forced, whether it's now or later, proactively or reactively. We started off by you talking about, you know, one of the reasons you got into this world of medicine, besides the fact that you probably wouldn't have been a black belt in karate. What's next for you? What are you going to be doing next? What are people going to be reading about or hearing about with Dr. Talia Varley? Because you're young and doing such purposeful work. What's next? More, bigger, greater scale, touching more lives. You know, one of our values at, at the Cleveland Clinic and in Canada is how do we reach more people to do more good for patients, for society at large? And so I think what we're going to see is more impact in terms of the, the number of clients and the types of organizations that we're really privileged to partner with, as well as more broader corporate ecosystem impact where we're doing more in the thought leadership space and really trying to get a lot of these powerful key takeaways out there so that any individual and any leader, any company can really benefit from these insights. You know, Dr. Varley, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And the first one is how important the word impact is to you, but it's not impact in terms of ego or impact in terms of how many people will give me a standing ovation. It's impact about how many lives you can impact, how many cultures you can impact. And for that, I think it's just wonderful work that you're trying to be this Yoda, helping people get to where they want to go. The second one that I really like is this platform that CEOs have and leaders have nowadays 
that might be more important than what we see in the mass media or even in through government and that they have a role to not only drive their agenda, but to drive agenda that impacts our planet, our communities, our humanity and the people that work with them. And the final thing, which I think is just so important for people to realize, who would you rather have on your team? Somebody that was high performance or somebody that you trust? And obviously you want both, but if you had to choose one, you go back to that Simon Sinek and the Navy SEALs example is trust matters most. The idea of creating organizations and cultures and communities and family dining room tables where people trust each other is a life well spent. Dr. Talia Varley, I'm so excited you're part of Chatter That Matters, and I wish we had five hours and not 40 minutes for this conversation. Well, Tony, again, thanks so much for having me on with you today. It was an absolute pleasure. Joining me in Chatter That Matters is Alan Richardson, Senior Vice President of Talent Strategy and Solutions at RBC. If you're a fan of the show, you know Alan is my go-to person when it comes to strategies for attracting, retaining, and motivating talent. I want to talk to you about Dr. Talia Varley, medical degree, psychology, as well as the business consulting. And she finds herself this intersection navigating what's well for the business and what's well for the employee. I know, that, I know that's not great English, but can they both exist? I think there's a couple things there. Uh, and I love the business consulting background because probably this is a personal experience moment as it was for me where, you know, you're in consulting, you're working crazy hours, your personal wellness is low, um, but you're doing it because you think that's what it takes to be successful. Recognizing that the health of the individual is the best thing for the health of the company, I think is, I'm sure we could do the science, but it also should just be instinctually sort of one of the things that makes sense to us. At the same time, we then have to find the means by which we drive performance, because what we're not talking about is saying, hey, employees, you can do whatever you want and just be, be healthy. That's not it at all. In fact, part of being healthy is having purpose, feeling like you're having an impact, having a sense of strategy and direction and knowing why you're doing what you're doing. So the burden on leadership is to understand the person, be there for them, be empathetic, but also challenge them to lift themselves up and see what could be better, see what could be more and push forward, which is how you drive performance ultimately over the long long term. It reminds me of an episode I did a few months ago with Kim Scott on Radical Candor. Be very direct with your feedback, at times demanding, but do it with empathy and do it with care. Whenever you're you know, we use radical candor at RBC, uh, and, and, and I think it's a really great framework. The question is, what culture and sort of environment are you putting that framework into? And how will people perceive it relative to the sort of experiences they have in their day to day? Uh, and, and fundamentally, yes, anyone can learn it, but they will only learn it and they will only practice it if they think it's going to be uh, meaningful and make a difference. And you have to then understand the culture in which you're working in to get there. How about people from diverse backgrounds that might have grown up in a family where uh, there's a matriarch or a patriarch, where you didn't challenge what your parents had to say? How do you open their minds to this world where, again, everybody has a seat at the table and everybody can have a point of view that we're all in it together. I mean, even at a bank, which traditionally has been a hierarchical structure, right? We still have to help folks appreciate that, that now we want them to challenge senior leadership when they feel they should, right? And, and in open that, open that cultural environment. And I think RBC's 
done well, but is still on a journey to do that. I do think that it comes down to the consequences, right? So ultimately, you can ask someone to do it, they'll do it once, and they'll wait to see, is the hammer going to drop, or am I going to get you know, recognized for it? And if the consequence is positive, and you do that enough times, then over time, that behavior will shift. But that means every single senior leader needs to have the ability to check themselves and not bite back when someone provides constructive feedback, but ask questions and empathize and listen and then reply in a way that is constructive and and appreciates the feedback and maybe says, great, we'll do something with that. Or maybe says, you know what, this is why we won't do something with that, but ultimately to do it in a way that that appreciates and recognizes the effort it took to give the feedback in of itself. A lot of small businesses are struggling with what, you know, the media's framed the great reset, but just attracting employees, keeping them in, within the organization. What advice can you give to them in terms of how they can become more magnetic in terms of the people that they want to attract and more importantly, keep them there. Absolutely. RBC benefits from being a large company, especially in Canada. We have a great brand that really helps us attract talent. But fundamentally, I think most people want to understand who they're working for. You know, today you actually, as small business, you have the tools that you need to become known externally for who you are and what you what you offer. If you are, you know, in a small business, you can you can put your name out there on LinkedIn. You can become a person on LinkedIn to those people that that you're interested in. And then, you know, really, it's in the interview where you're going to convince them that you're a great boss to work for, um, because that's who people want to work for. They want to work for great bosses, great managers. They will go towards places, brand or not where they think they're working for someone they believe in and that that has vision and that will take care of them, that will support them as we've talked about. So as a small business, yeah, you can't lean into the brand, but you can build a personal brand as a great leader, as a great manager. Um, and as you do that, then I think you'll attract more people that want to work for you. And you're, you're, you know, if you're a mid-sized company, your, your managers can be doing that as well. I can understand why your title is Senior Vice President of Talent Strategy and Solutions. Thanks for joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.